Song of Solomon, chapter 3. Searching for love, dreams, and weddings. If you've got a Bible, have a look at chapter 3, and you'll see. I'm going to do what we normally do now is we look at this, the song as it is, and then we look at the song as an illustration of the relationship between Christ and His people. The song as it is, of course, is a love poem between the Shunammite woman and Solomon, and it's uh, a poem which celebrates her, their longing to be married. Uh, today, we come actually to the wedding and uh, something, well, actually before the wedding, which is a little bit difficult, um, chapter one, chapter three, rather, verses one to verse four. Um, I kind of feel that, that we had the marriage enrichment course, so I really think that Bev and Tim should be ready just to come up, and every now and then you can nod and you can say, that's right, that's good marriage therapy, because we're going to look at, at some of this. Um, the first part is really a dream, and I'll explain the reason for saying that. <coughs> Verses 1 to 4 are a dream. Uh, one of the reasons that we know that, the language that it's couched in Verse 3, you're not really meant to take literally that this woman is walking around saying to the policeman, yeah, where's my lover? That's not what's occurring. Basically, she, you know it's a dream because of the very first line, all night long on my bed. And the second part, there's a, a kind of little gap. Verse 5 is a repeat of a verse that's in chapter 2. And then verses 6 to 11 describes the wedding. Now, as we look at this, there are things that we can learn. Uh, some of you are married, and we can learn things for those of us who are married. Some are, and you're never too late to learn. Yeah, I, I, somebody said to me that this series is for younger people. Uh, no, you can kindle your romance or rekindle your romance, your romance when you're older. Uh, s- many of you are single, and you're hoping that you won't remain that way, and you'll hopefully get some advice uh, in this direction as well. And some are, uh, are single and, and will remain single, but it's still good to know <coughs> in terms even of praying for others. And also, as I said, uh, ultimately, it, I think this still does boil down to the most important thing of all, our relationship with Christ, and that's applicable to us all. So let's just, we're going to take five things from the dream. Uh, I started off, you see I've got it there, love longs, love hurts, and so on. And I had a whole series of songs, and then I realized, for some of you, you're too old to know the songs I'm referring to, and for others of you, you're too young. So I, you can make up your own songs. If you can give me a list of songs, because there's so many songs that, that fit in with this. But the first part is to do with this dream, uh, a dream where the woman is lying on her bed, and in her dream, whether she's actually having a dream or whether it's, it's really a fantasy where she's lying on her bed and just thinking and, and fantasizing, really, about uh, her beloved. And like all dreams, it's a mixture. You could put it down as a nightmare as well because there is uh, hope and there is some discouragement uh, and some fears as well. So the first thing is uh, in verse 1, I longed... For I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him, but did not find him. Oops, sorry, I forgot that mic. Um, that just simply says that love longs. 
All night long, I longed, and I was going to say Lionel Richie, some of you will know, but um, it's, it's uh, <coughs> the picture of somebody lying on her bed, not really being able to sleep, and just longing to be with the person she loves. Verse 2 says, I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves, so I, I looked for him, but did not find him. It's this part of what love is, is there is a longing to be with the person whom you love. It, it really can become quite all-consuming. You know that there is something wrong with your relationship if you don't actually want to be with the person. I was listening to uh, one of Mark Driscoll's sermons on this, and one of the interesting things he points out in modern architecture in the United States, and I suspect it may be the case here, for those who are quite wealthy, it's now the fashionable thing to have two master bedrooms, with each with their own suite, their master en suite and whatever, because the husband and the wife are expecting to live separately. And the idea is that why would you, why would you want to be with somebody for that amount of time? Well, that's a very, very sad reflection of the ultimate individualism in our lives. One thing that love does do is it longs. It longs to, to be with the person that we love. Second thing is that love seeks. In verse 3, we, she searched. Verse 2, she searched for the one my heart loves. Verse 3, the watchman found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? In a way, it's quite a comic image because the watchman are what we would now know as the policemen. And it's as though you wandered into City Square or you, you wandered along the Perth Road and you just went up to a policeman at three o'clock in the morning and have you, have you seen the person I love? What are they going to do? They're, they're going to look at you as though you're absolutely crazy. They have no idea what you're talking about. And that's true here as well. The watchmen are not much help. Now, in this particular dream, there are certain insecurities that are coming out. She's very, very concerned. I will search for the one my heart loves. Maybe she's lost him. And that in her dream, that causes her to do something as irrational as, as this. Um, some of you have gone shopping in Tesco's in your pajamas at midnight. But uh, that's being banned now, by the way. But here is the kind of image of someone going out and looking in the middle of the night. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to do it. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go up to a stranger and ask. But one of the things you find about love is that it can be irrational, impractical, impossible, and impulsive. The passion of love can make us do irrational things. She assumes everyone knows his identity. They haven't a clue. There's great fear. There's a fear of loss and a fear of abandonment. And that takes us on to the third thing, that love really does hurt. Um, in the words of a good Scottish band called Nazareth, it takes a lot of pain. We don't like thinking that. There's pain in this. Have you seen the one my heart loves? There's, what does it say? What does Shakespeare say? The path of true love never did run smooth. The quote underneath there is, from one of the writers who says this, there's a place for pain in every true relationship. 
the pain that gives one the opportunity to grow in love and bear one another's burdens, the pain that learns to live with limitations, with frustrated desires, with unfulfilled ambitions. It may be that you have this very, very romantic idea of love that you fall in love with somebody, that you get married, you have the wedding day, you live happily ever after. And when you start connecting with somebody, it may be that you discover that there's a lot of hurt involved as well. And in a way, to get close to people and to get closer to people, sometimes it really hurts. In fact, it's highly questionable whether you can love somebody without opening yourself to being hurt. People who hurt you the most, or who people who can hurt you the most, are the people you love and the people who love you. And I think that's one of the concerns here, that <coughs> there is a, a longing and a pain that's involved. Proverbs 13, verse 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. There's one way to guarantee that you will never be hurt in love, and that is never to love. And sometimes that's actually a, a big factor when people are thinking about courtship and marriage or going out. You don't want to do it unless you're absolutely certain because you don't want to get hurt. But if you behave like that, then you will find what you're looking for, or rather you will never ever find what you're looking for. A love that, that never hurts or a love that is, that is never hurt. Fourth thing is, love holds. Look what happens, verse 4. Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. She goes past the watchman. Again, this is in her dream. She goes past the watchman, and she finds him. I held him and would not let him go until I brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived. Love holds. It's, um, it's not quite clinging but it's this idea she finds, she's scared she's going to lose him, she finds him, and she basically, the, the word that she uses, she hugs him, and she just keeps hugging him, and she's not uh, going to let go of him. And she takes him uh, by the hand and to her mother's house. Now, the reason for that is obvious in the culture it was in. You'll see also in verse 11 <coughs> that Solomon's mother is mentioned. And that's because it was essential that before they got married, she had the approval of her parents, and in particular, her mother. So in most cases, for most of you, your mother's approval, don't let your mother choose your partner for you. That's not the culture we live in. But it's uh, here in this culture, it was certainly the case that they were expecting the approval of the mother. So I, I brought him. I wouldn't let go of him. I held on to him, and I took him to meet his future mother-in-law, which is not the point at which you start making mother-in-law jokes, because um, in a way, that kind of wears thin in our culture, and it kind of has this impression. See, if you read this to somebody and you say, she held on to him, and she took him to his future mother-in-law, there are some men who would say, that's the nightmare scenario, where a woman clings on to me, and where I'm dragged to meet my future mother-in-law. It's a complete, I think, misunderstanding 
of what's involved. She, she longs for him, and she wants to be with him, and she uh, takes him to her mother for uh, approval. Then at number five, love waits, verse five. This is a repeat of chapter two, verse seven. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Exactly the same verse as in 2 verse 7. Now, what's that saying? Now, please do remember that this is uh, an erotic poem as well, and it is talking about sex and the physical consummation of a marriage. And when she's lying on her bed and she's thinking about her lover, as as we will see when you go into chapter 4, it is, it is part, part of it is the physical attraction. And again, in, in chapter 3, verse 5, it's the same thing as in 2, verse 7. She wants to wait. Now, this might be a little uncomfortable for some people, but in all the time that I've been in Dundee, I have met Christians, young Christians, in the Christian unions uh, who haven't grasped this point, who think, well, if you love somebody and you're with somebody, then what's wrong? You're not sleeping around with different people. This is your boyfriend, your girlfriend, this is your fiance, whatever, and physically you're getting closer and closer and closer, and what's wrong with sleeping with them? You go to church you believe in Jesus, you trust in Jesus, you're going to get married, why wait? Why abstain? Isn't that denying what you are in yourself? Isn't that denying the expression of your love and so on? And I've, and I've heard that expressed many, many times in different ways. I remember discussing it once, and uh, someone who was a minister uh, said, Oh, your views are just really, really old-fashioned. No, they're not old-fashioned, and it doesn't matter whether they're old-fashioned or new-fashioned or whatever. It matters that they're biblical, and it is not biblical, and it is not right for people to have sex out with marriage and for people to sleep together before they get married. Why? Well, because the Bible has an extremely high view of what sex is. The Bible has, uh, uh, it's not prudish in any way whatsoever. You can't say that when the Bible has the Song of Songs in it. But it's precisely because it's, it is meant to be special that we are supposed to wait. You see, the point about marriage is you are committing yourself in public to be with your partner forever, forsaking all others. It is only when that commitment is made that you are really free to give yourself body and heart and soul and mind to your partner. Before then, there's always some degree of reservation. And one of the most dreadful things that happens, by the way, is when you get people saying and teaching, well, and forgive the crudity of this expression, but that's just how I've heard it put. You've got to try before you buy. First of all, you're not buying. And secondly, no, you don't. That's not the way it is. That's a completely worldly, cheap, and salacious view of of human sexuality. 
If you truly love somebody, then you be prepared to wait. In terms of sex, you wait until you take the vows and then you consummate your love. Now, some people will say, well, well, it's too late. I've already gone down that route. Some people will even say, look, before I became a Christian, I just slept around a lot. Other people will say, look, I've been a Christian all my life, but I've slipped and fallen. What's involved there? Well, don't justify it and don't excuse it. You just simply seek forgiveness and repentance and healing and pray that it doesn't disrupt and affect your relationships in the future. And God in His grace and His mercy, I believe, will answer that prayer. But if you are a Christian and if you find yourself in a, in a a situation which in our culture some people would say is embarrassing. You're still a virgin and so on, male or female. People would laugh at you. Don't, don't ever give in to that kind of pressure. They don't grasp and they don't understand what sex is supposed to be about. And that's what's wrecking havoc in so many relationships and that's what's doing so much harm. Now, I think the Bible is very explicit. I think it is, it is it's very, uh, it's not re- <coughs> repressive at all. It's very open about human sexuality, but it's very clear about the guidelines and the boundaries in which it works. And maybe some of you might say, well, I'm not a Christian. That just seems completely ridiculous. If you believe, as we do, that God made us, then we also believe that the maker knows best. And so we accept what his word says. And here she is, this woman is very passionate and she's very passionate in speaking about what she's looking for and she knows what she's waiting for and she lies on her bed at night and basically she, she's having a nightmare that he's gonna go and she's fantasizing being married to him. And there was nothing wrong with that, but she's saying, Don't arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Okay, then the next section from verses 6 to verse 11 is the wedding. And again, I've just taken what this says about love. Now, in verse 6, there's a problem here. It says, who is this coming up from the desert like a column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant? Look, it is Solomon's carriage. Here's the problem. The NIV puts it, and most versions put it as though Who's coming out of the desert? And it is describing a wedding. It's Solomon coming out of the desert. The trouble is that verse 6, and this isn't obvious in the English, is feminine. So it's saying, who's the woman coming out of the desert? And what you've really got in verse 6 is you've got the, basically, the bridal entrance. And it's pretty dramatic. The column of smoke perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of the merchant. Love beautifies it's, it's, all, it, it's kind of surreal, um, not that we would ever do this, but if you could imagine we had the band here, and this would be absolutely awful, and they're never ever going to do this, but sometimes you see bands playing and they have dry ice and uh, smoke effects and lighting effects and things like that, and they are not going to ever be allowed to do that. You won't find that in the scriptures, and there's no dry ice or anything, but you, you know the kind of imagery and the kind of picture and the kind of scene or sometimes you get this photo imaging stuff and you have the photo of someone and then you blur the edges so that it kind of looks misty and romantic. Well, that is really the impression here of here comes this woman, she's coming up out of the desert like a column of, 
uh, smoke perfume with myrrh and incense. It's, um, it's a, a, a picture, actually meant to be a picture of great beauty. I found this poem, and I thought I would share it with you. Uh, it's from Wordsworth, and part of the Song of Solomon is about how you express your love, and I actually really, really like this poem. Um, it's a great way, and come next Valentine's Day, all the guys here will take this down and be able to send it on, and hopefully the ladies will remember. She was a phantom of delight when first she gleamed upon my sight, a lovely apparition sent to be a moment's ornament. Her eyes as stars of twilight fair, like twilight's too, her dusky hair, but all things else about her drawn from Maytime and the cheerful dawn, a dancing shape, an image gay, to haunt, to startle and waylay, and yet a spirit still and bright with something of an angel light. And the, the rest of the poem, you can go and Google it or look it up, uh, Wordsworth, Phantom of Delight. Well, that's the idea there of love beautifying. The bride, when the bride comes in, the bride looks stunning. I don't know how many weddings we've done where people have walked through that door. I have never yet seen an ugly bride. And I really mean that. I've never, yeah, and you never, I mean, people don't just say it. You don't see a bride come in and you don't think, they don't go, oh, she's not looking too good today. That's not, you never see that. Brides always look beautiful, and that's true. You know, and the guy, you see the guy's eyes filling up when she turns and looks at her, and, and she's just absolutely stunning. Well, that's the image, the, the picture here. Next thing is, love is real. What's this about coming up from the desert? Well, it's, it's, it's important imagery in the Bible. In this chapter, there's been this kind of mean streets of the city, and now he comes on to the desert imagery. The desert is a place of great reality. Uh, those who've been in the desert and who've stayed in the desert for a while say, rather than being a kind of barren wilderness, it's a place where you become very, very conscious of who you are and very conscious of who God is and just conscious of your smallness and conscious of... Uh, the power of nature and the power of God. Because what happens is everything gets stripped away, but you are in the desert. And here's an, an image here of the idea of love being a great stripping away of all illusions, opening the eyes to reality. Some people have this image of love that it's a dream, that it's not real. Whereas what is being said here is this, the bride comes and she's come out of the desert and there's a reality in her love. <coughs> and love is real. Love commits. That's what you get in terms here of the, the marriage, the wedding that is being described. This is the only part of the book that really describes the wedding, the actual marriage, and mentions that it's Solomon's. And again, I've got to say something here that, that really offends people. And, and uh, I I get in so much trouble for saying this when you do it in public and so on. But it's just simply this. That marriage is between one man and one woman. It is not between one man and one man. It is not between one woman and one woman. And there's going to be enormous pressure on you, especially those of you who are younger, that our children are going to be taught in schools, our media portray this absolutely. None of our politicians have the guts to stand up and challenge the media consensus on this. I can't think of one who's prepared to do that. But there's no such thing as gay, and I don't even like that word, there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. It is a contradiction, it's an oxymoron. 
It is, not, it is God who gave us marriage, and God determines what marriage is. And you, you don't have marriage between two men. You don't have marriage between two women. Marriage is between a man and a woman, and it is a real and serious commitment. It's why you don't get married lightly. It's why you don't rush into marriage, and it's certainly why you don't rush out of it. You are committing yourself to your partner for the rest of your life, come good or ill. Solomon comes, look at the, the actual wedding, verse 7. It's Solomon's carriage, escorted by 60 warriors, the noblest of Israel, all of them wearing the sword. I mean, it really is some wedding. The 60 warriors corresponds to the 60 queens of chapter 6 and verse 8. It also, the description also co corresponds with Psalm 45, which is a royal wedding psalm, which mentions also swords and myrrh and gold. But it is some scene. I, I can't say if this is true or not. Um, from the male side of it, I, I never dreamed of my wedding day. I just thought a wedding day was a wedding day. I thought, who would be daft enough to marry me? That was one thing. But if I ever got a wedding day, I'd just be happy to have it happen. And uh, I actually really, really enjoyed um, our wedding day. But I, I'm told that uh, people, some people, male or female, dream about their wedding day. Well, this is the wedding day to end all wedding days. He, Solomon didn't have one best man. He had 60. And they all came in with their swords ready. There was, he was not opting out of this at all. They, uh, it really went for it. The, the carriage comes. There's, uh, it's posts made of silver. It's base of gold and so on. It's a real commitment. That's, you know, sometimes people make mistakes in terms of, of weddings. It's ironic that as marriages become cheaper in society and people think they can get out of it, weddings have become more expensive. The average wedding costs, the last time I looked, I think the figure was 22,000 pounds, the average wedding. I just hope none of my children are looking, they're going to get a less than average one. <laughs> but 22,000 pounds, that's absolutely ridiculous. And, and, and in general, I think, you know, we need to seriously think, and I'll throw this out for some of you, um, you don't necessarily have to have a big wedding with the hotel paying double the amount that they would normally charge for food. When you could have it in the, with, if you're a Christian, and hopefully you're marrying a Christian, you could have it with the covenant community and get the church to share and provide and so on. There are people who don't get married because it's too expensive to get married, which is dreadful. But certainly the marriage ceremony and the day itself should reflect the commitment that the couple are making to one another. Love is difficult, verse 8. The reason I say that is it says, each with a sword at his side prepared for the terrors of the night. Now, in Psalm 91, verse 5, that same expression is used, and most people believe that both of them refer to kind of supernatural, that it, it's, there's something almost demonic in the attacks upon marriage that occur. I tell you what cripples a Christian more than anything else is a marriage that goes wrong. There are ministers, and there are elders, and there are deacons, and there are members, uh, male or female, who find themselves trying to serve God, and then there's an assault upon their marriage, and it's so difficult and so hard. There are… it's not always easy. It's not always a bed of roses 
And again, you need to be very, very careful that uh, the Lord seeks godly couples. That's what Malachi says. And the devil will therefore do the utmost to disrupt that. And then number 10, love rejoices. There's the carriage coming, the sedan chair, the cedars of Lebanon adorned with silver, gold, and purple cloth. This time Solomon's mother is in on the act. She's got a crown. It was a tradition actually, not just for kings, but the mother would give something that indicated her approval, and uh, he certainly has that, and he rejoices on the day of his wedding. Will you have this woman to be your wife? Will you have this man to be your husband? These are very serious but incredibly joyful questions. On the day of his wedding, the day his heart rejoiced. Derek Thomas says this, the entire world loves a lover. Why? Because it brings out the best in him. A good wife will make any man better than he actually is, or at least she will make him look better than he actually is. Some of his best qualities emerge, manliness, tenderness, responsibility. I don't want to be sexist, so I'll put it both ways, that a good husband will bring out the best in his partner. And uh, I think if you find yourself going out with somebody and you both bring out the worst in each other, you maybe need to reflect upon that a little bit. But here, there's something here that's just bringing out the best, not fear and, and, and discouragement and despair, but bringing out the best. It's a, it's a picture of a very, very joyful occasion and a very uh, joyful wedding. So you have the dream where she's afraid she's going to lose him, where she's searching for him. You have the, the entrance of the bride as she comes in from the desert. You have the actual wedding that occurs. And uh, next week, we will go on to the wedding speeches and uh, what they say to one another. But uh, I want to come back and look at this. But before we do that, we're going to sing, uh, There is a Higher Throne, I think. And we'll then come back and just look at this from the point of view of the believer. Let's go back to the, what love is. And I want to just, if you've got a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2. And just simply says this, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's what we've just been singing about. And that also is what this song is about because there... Our love for Jesus Christ and His love for us, it's, uh, like I've said before in this, it's not an analogy, but it's an illustration that illustrates how, how it works. Firstly, very simple, we long, verse 1, all night long on my bed, I longed for the one my heart loves. It does seem a strange thing, doesn't it? to long for Jesus Christ. I did a mission in St. Andrews a number of years ago, and there were a whole bunch of guys from the rugby club who clearly were not Christians. I'm not saying 
Um, I'm not saying, Craig, that you can't be a rugby player and not a Christian, but they clearly were not Christians. So they were here at this evangelistic meeting, and I could not believe what the CU had them singing, because the song was awful anyway. It was, uh, but the line, the main line was, ooh, 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 Jesus, I'm so in love with you, ooh, ooh. And all these guys, big, you know, hulky rugby guys were just going, I'm not singing about being in love with another man. You could see the look of horror absolutely on their faces. And you could completely understand that. It was entirely inappropriate in the circumstances. But sometimes we use language in that sense. And what does it mean to, to long for Jesus Christ? Well, it's certainly not, obviously not. Uh, people accuse Christians of using erotic language and so on. No, no. It, it's a desire. It's a desire to be with Jesus. It's, it's a desire to know Jesus. You'd be prepared to wander the city streets to look for Jesus. All night long on my bed, there is such a thing as a dark night of the soul. There are, there are times for the Christian when we feel very, very far from God, where the name Jesus is just a name, where we are struggling within ourselves spiritually, where we are asleep or we feel like we are dead. And we just long to be with Christ. We long to know Christ. We long to experience Christ. See, if you're not a Christian, this is really, really hard to grasp because you can have moments where you are just so aware of Christ's presence and so certain of His love that it does. It really does fill your heart with joy. It's not because of the music. It's not because you've just had a good meal. It's not because of the gifts that you get from God. It's because of God Himself. And the Christian <coughs> longs for that. It's not our continual experience, but we long for it. We look for it. You read through the Bible, you look, you look at um, Paul in the New Testament, and he expresses his longing to be with Christ. Number two, love seeks. We, we don't just long for Him, but we search for Him. Those who seek will find. There are some of you who are Christians, and your Christianity is pretty dead. And emotionally and spiritually, it's very, very detached. And you're scared almost to go any further. But you seek. You want to know Him. She, uh, the woman in, in the song here, was being quite irrational about the thing. She assumes everyone knows His identity. There are people, they haven't a clue. They, they have no idea what she's talking about. There are people who are spiritually hungry and people who are spiritually thirsty, and what they're looking for is Jesus Christ. I remember one lady, she uh, never came to church, seemed to have no interest whatsoever. I visited her and um, again seemed to have no interest as far as I could see. Then when she came to church and she heard about Jesus, she heard it was a sermon on the woman of Samaria, and she came out and she instantly said, that's what I've been looking for all my life. That's exactly what I've been longing for all my life. I've been looking for it, and I didn't even know who or what I was looking for. Well, you seek. Love hurts. When you long to be closer to Christ, there's a very safe and a very comfortable religion, and it's called religion, where you can keep God at a distance, where you can keep everything nicely pigeonholed, where you stay in control. 
But when you seek to follow Jesus Christ, sometimes it hurts. Those whom He loves, He disciplines. Sometimes He leads us in still waters, but sometimes He leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and it can be extremely painful. It holds. Verse 4, it uh, I held him and would not let him go. McShane preached a famous sermon on it, talking about holding on to Jesus Christ and not letting go of Jesus Christ. When you find Christ, you hold on to Him. Now, how do you do that? Prayer, letting go of the things that hold us back, faith, and trust absolutely in Him. And then, love waits. Now, it's in a different sense. Again, in the New Testament, you find this longing where the uh, believers prayed, Maranatha, even so, come soon, Lord Jesus. We long for the coming of the Lord. The whole imagery in the New Testament, the imagery we've just read in Revelation, is of the bride of Christ being prepared, but it's not yet the wedding feast (coughs) of the Lamb. And there's a whole lot more better that is to come. All that we will ever taste in this life is just a foretaste of the glory that is to be. So, we are prepared to wait for Jesus. In fact, the Christian life could be described as waiting for Jesus, waiting upon Christ, seeking to serve Him, waiting for His return. And then the wedding. Let me get that one to work. No, I can't. Says he. Uh, Can you get it to move on? Yeah, that's it. The wedding of the Lamb. That's what we're waiting for. Love beautifies. Revelation 21 verse 2, that the bride comes and adorned as a beautiful bride. See, when you think about the church, I said there's never such a thing as an ugly bride. The church of Jesus Christ will not be ugly. If you like, in our beautification process, we may go through some some ugly periods. Uh, I don't personally do this, but apparently you can put cucumbers on your eyes and you can put mud packs on your face and all these things apparently help you. Um, Go ahead. Uh, But when it actually happens, if you ever knock on someone's door and you answer the door and they've got got the face all mucked up and, uh, and cucumbers on the eyes, they look absolutely horrendous. But they're doing it in order to look beautiful. There's a sense in which sometimes you look at the church and you think it's so ugly because there are things that are really ugly, things that Christ comes and Christ exposes. Uh, Oliver Cromwell said, you know, paint me warts and all. Well, when you are getting married, you basically want all the warts and everything to be removed. And one of the reasons that the church is here on earth is to bear witness to Jesus Christ, but another is that we've been prepared for the wedding feast of the Lamb. The love is real, the coming up from the desert idea, the desert imagery. As I said, the the desert is a place of great reality. Love is a great stripping away of all the illusions, the opening of eyes to reality. There are people who don't get it, who don't get that what we do when we worship Jesus Christ is real. When we follow Jesus Christ, He's real. It's not some religious illusion. In fact, the illusion is when we think that we can do without God. And sometimes the Lord takes us into a wilderness. Sometimes He takes us into a desert place. Sometimes He strips away all the things that we rely on 
in order to help us see that we need Him absolutely. And we don't need all the other stuff. There's a, there's a reality in, in loving and following Jesus Christ. Love commits. That's, uh, again, the, the same thing in terms of our relationship with Jesus Christ. We, he is committed to us in the sense of He died for us. You don't get a stronger commitment than that. But Jesus is not looking for half-hearted followers. He says, you're neither hot nor cold, therefore I spew you out of my mouth. You, you don't want somebody, if you're getting married, you don't want them to be casual about it. Do you take this man to be uh, your lawful wedded husband? Do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Yeah, I suppose so. Why not? You don't, that's not the answer you want on your wedding day. You want an absolute and wholehearted commitment. And incidentally, of course, that's what, what the sexual side of it is all about as well. It's not casual. The term casual sex is, is, dis, is disgusting because it's completely the opposite. It's absolute commitment, vulnerability, trusting, knowing. That's why the Bible uses the word know in terms of, of sexual intercourse. And in our relationship with Jesus Christ, Jesus is not interested in half-hearted Christians. He's not interested in people who say, oh, I'll give it a go and see how it works. See what Jesus can do for me. He's, he's looking for us to be wholeheartedly committed to him. It's difficult. Verse 8, the terrors of the night. There are real supernatural enemies that we face. There are lots of barriers and blocks that get put in our way in terms of following Jesus Christ. And it rejoices. There is a, a great beauty and a great joy in, in getting to know Jesus. I love that song that we just sang where it talks about we'll sing the perfect song and we'll be able to sing perfectly. We'll all be in tune in heaven. Um, there'll be no saying, oh, well, um, I, nobody's going to say in heaven, listen, the drums are too loud or I don't like the guitars or uh, the person beside me is tone deaf. Uh, we're all going to sing the perfect song. We, we, and what we do on this earth is a, is a little bit of a foretaste of that, but definitely the best is yet to come. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Let me say this to you. You might not be feeling particularly beautiful just now, you may feel that there's ugliness and uh, a depth of sin, discouragement, depression in your own life. Well, the Lord died for you to make you beautiful, and He's going to. There's nothing that will stop that happening. When you have committed yourself to Jesus Christ, you have committed yourself wholly and absolutely into the person who… It's, the one difference between that and a normal wedding is this. In a normal wedding, you're both committing to each other and waiting to see what will happen. The reason you say yes to Jesus Christ is because He first loved you. We love Him because He first loved us. How do we know that? Because of what He did for us. We're not saying, yes, and I'm just going to wait and see how it will work out, or yes, but I really want to know what you're going to do for me, Jesus. We're saying yes to Jesus because of what He has done in the cross. And all the ugliness of our sin, 
all the bad aspects of our character. He will renew. He's even going to renew our bodies. That's what all of that is about. And that's why when we sing, I love the Lord, we should mean it and we should realize what it does mean. And I think also that um, we should long for Him and search for Him. If you're not a Christian, you search for Christ. If you are a Christian, you want to know Him a whole lot better. As Paul says, to know Him is to love Him. May God bless His Word to us. Let's pray. <coughs> Lord, thank You for Your Word. Bless it to us. Help us as we go from this place. Help us in our relationships. I pray especially for uh, the young people here who are considering future and those who are in relationships, those who think about marriage, those who would who'd hope to be married at some point uh, in the not-too-distant future. And I pray that you would guide and that you would uh, help them to be committed to one another and to you. I pray, O oh Lord, for those of us who are married, uh, that uh, you would help us to reflect more uh, who you are in our marriages and that we would have more confidence in your love for us and that we would uh, be better husbands and wives. I pray, Lord, for those who are single and ask again your blessing to be upon each one because you have called us together to be your family and you have given each of us different gifts. And we thank you that there is none superior or inferior in that respect. We thank you, Lord, most of all for your love shown to us in Christ. And we ask that each of us would be prepared for the great and glorious day, the wedding feast of the Lamb, and that all of our days we would sing your praises until we reach that day when we would sing perfectly in tune, perfectly in key, perfectly in harmony, as we rejoice with all the angels in heaven, the 10,000 times 10,000 angels before the throne, glorifying and worshiping you as your own blood-bought people come finally into their full salvation and redemption. Lord, help us to anticipate and look forward to that day in your name. Amen.